0: Girls5Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 368th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is brought to you by The Flight Attendant, Starring Kaylee Cuoco, whose performance Entertainment Weekly calls phenomenal. Watch the series The Hollywood Reporter hails as a, quote, bright, glossy, fast-moving mystery, close quote. The Flight Attendant, now streaming on HBO Max. And now down to business. My guest today is an actor, writer, director, and producer who has had one of the most interesting and unusual Hollywood careers of the past 30 years. Reaching the highest of highs, hitting the lowest of lows, and somehow, time after time, finding his way back. He first crossed the radar of most people when Goodwill Hunting, a 1997 film that he co-wrote and co-starred in with his lifelong best friend Matt Damon, was awarded the Best Original Screenplay Oscar in 1998. In that moment, at age 25, he became and remains the youngest ever winner of a screenwriting Oscar. In the ensuing years, he became a Hollywood A-lister, starring in giant movies like 1998's Armageddon and 2001's Pearl Harbor, and being named People's Sexiest Man Alive in 2002. Only to see it all washed away by a series of critically demolished films, especially 2004's Jersey Girl and 2005 Gili, and the tabloid's relentless coverage of his relationship with his co-star in those films, Jennifer Lopez. And yet, he clawed his way back to respectability with a humble character part in 2006's Hollywoodland and an impressive directorial debut with 2007's Gone Baby Gone, followed by 2010's The Town and 2012's Argo, the last of which was awarded the Best Picture Oscar, meaning an odds-defying return to the Oscars podium for its director 15 years after he was last there. However, in the years since, his standing fell once again thanks to his surprising decision to take on the role of Batman in several DC Universe films, which then underperformed. His first bomb as a director, 2016's Live by Night, and a battle with alcoholism that contributed to the end of his marriage to Jennifer Garner forced him into rehab and left many doubting if, this time, he would be able to professionally bounce back. And then, in March 2020, just before the pandemic shut down America, he returned to the big screen in Gavin O'Connor's The Way Back, a film in which he plays a man whose life has been decimated by alcoholism, but who is given a shot at redemption when the high school at which he was once a basketball star asks him to return as the coach of its struggling basketball team. The result is, as The Atlantic put it, quote, the rawest and most natural performance he has given in his career, close quote and one that could lead to his first-ever acting Oscar nomination. I'm talking, of course, about Ben Affleck. Over the course of our conversation, the 48-year-old and I discussed his difficult childhood and how a high school acting teacher wound up serving as something of a surrogate father for him, giving him the confidence to pursue his dreams of becoming a professional actor, how he and Damon wound up writing Good Will Hunting and convincing Hollywood to make it with them in the main roles, thereby launching their careers, how he navigated newfound celebrity, the benefit period, his personal struggles, and the many times when people have written him off, why he took on the part in The Way Back, which hits very close to home, and how he feels about it now, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. (laughs) Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the podcast and uh, on this one, we always just begin right at the beginning. I think most people know the answer to part one of this, but can you just share where you were born and raised and uh, what your folks did for a living?
1: I was actually born in California because uh, my parents were my mother was teaching at a uh kind of alternative school in Oakland at the time, I was born at Alta Bates Hospital in Oakland, August 15th, 1972, around 2.30 in the morning, for all those who are really interested in my right. right. And then they moved back, they they lived in Boston, they moved back to Boston a couple of years later. Um, I grew up there, my mother's a public school teacher. Uh, She taught public school, mostly fifth and sixth grade, for about more than 30 years she's a brilliant woman. She went, she actually got into Radcliffe and graduated from Harvard. She was there when they merged and she could have done a lot of things, but she was really believed in education and wanted to do that. And so, um, and, and obviously she didn't believe in money because she married my father who was a janitor and a bartender. And, uh, I don't know, seemed determined, never mostly unemployed and alcoholic. So, uh, uh, not not a promising uh <laughs> you know, uh not a gold digger my mom but uh, right, right. and he uh he kicked around he actually wanted to be and did did try to um well he didn't try he did he was a writer he wrote he he worked at the theater company of boston as a consistent director with a guy named david wheeler who did some really impressive theater directing uh and and did know uh and come across quite a few actors who later became very successful, guys like Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. and uh, Robert Duval and John Boyd and Al Pacino and people like that who came through the theater company in Boston, um, but he was not successful as a, uh, wasn't able to be, you know, sell his writing and um, or get a job as a director and also his drinking kind of contributed to his deterioration. He didn't quit drinking until I was 19 and I had left mm-hmm. and moved to California, so Mostly during my former, and he was a sort of an old fashioned, you know, what they call low bottom drunk, you know, kind of wino mm-hmm. type, live on the streets type guy. Mm-hmm. So he kind of fell apart. But his, his being a janitor, he was a janitor at Harvard, which was the um, inspiration for Matt's character being a janitor, We switched it to MIT because it was such a, you know, math is a right, more easy right. thing to dramatize and solving a theorem on a chalkboard and stuff seemed like something that happened at MIT rather than Harvard, but the whole sort of, not only the kind of town and gown aspect of, of the Good Hunting story, but the the guy, I thought my father was a brilliant guy and a genius and underappreciated. And, you know, you, you kind of tend to, um, luckily for me, I think often with my own children, you tend to sort of, think the best and worship your dad and he's your hero and even he, despite evidence to the contrary you know i was like <laughs> i know he's a genius it's in there somewhere and in fact because he had these relationships with that he he would talk about i never met, met any of those guys but like you know these guys who went on to fame and fortune that was sort of the inspiration i mean i talk about this movie like you remember or saw it yesterday. It was 25 years ago or something, but in Good Will Hunting, Rob Williams' character and Stella Skarsgård's character were meant to have been old friends. One went on to become quite famous and successful. The other was teaching at a community college. That was sort of like my idea of my dad. I knew these guys, you know, and then went separate ways. And
0: Well, was your dad's acting work? At all an influence for? I mean, you started really young. I know your first kind of paid gig I think was seven. Yeah. Uh, did that have anything to do with your dad, or that was? totally. No, my sad? dad actually
1: wasn't an actor. Uh, he 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 was a, dire- a writer and a director, theater, and did direct a kind of adaptation of early video adaptation of one of his plays. They called the bottom line about when he was a car mechanic. Also, he worked at a place called Autotorium, which was kind of a fusion of his auto mechanic and theater interest. Um, But they fixed old Toyotas. Um, And uh, no, my parents did not want me to be an actor. had nothing to do with it. In fact, they knew so many miserable, struggling actors who didn't make any money, and they knew how hard it was that they really discouraged me. My father kind of fell out of my life once his drinking became really extreme around uh, around when he moved out of the house around 10 or eleven. And when I was 10 or 11. And um, my mom was, you know, really believed in academics and studying and wanted me to, you know, be a history professor or something and wanted me to get good grades. And uh, it just so happened that her best friend and the woman that she went to college with was a casting director in Boston, brought me in just at random because she was looking for little kids for a PBS TV series that WGBH was producing. So they were casting out of Boston. That's the local PBS affiliate in Boston. I don't know if you ever watched Zoom, but oh, two, one, three, eight. That, that was my zip code. So I always <laughs> thought I was famous. My zip code. <laughs> she brought me in. I auditioned for this thing, Voyage of the Mimi. And you know, as luck would have it, uh, randomly, uh, I got it, not even knowing exactly what it was or what it meant. And then I really liked it. And it ran, it was sort of in some ways the best of both worlds because I got a lot of experience as an actor. I I worked a lot. My mother also made sure I had a a normal life. I didn't go to LA. I didn't do sort of a lot of other stuff. I went to normal public school, but periodically I would go off and and be an actor and I found that I really loved it. Um, I'm not sure that the kids in sixth grade for whom the show, The Voyage of the Mimi, was mandatory science curriculum loved it (laughs) as much as I did, but uh,
0: well, so the, that was the first one, but uh, let me ask you about another early important kind of uh, thing, which I guess let me frame it this way. You, you've had for a lot of years a production company called Pearl Street Films. Why do you, this is you and Matt Damon, why is it called Pearl Street Films? Matt
1: and I grew up uh, two blocks apart and Pearl Street was the street that we would walk to to get to one another's house. You know, later someone was like, is that like some kind of porn reference? And I was like, porn? What are you talking about? <laughs> and they also got a pearl necklace or something. But no, you know, I don't know. It has a sort of odd ring. But no, Pearl Street is the street is the is the street in uh in Boston where we uh Cambridge actually, where uh between, you know, Matt and I grew up uh, two blocks away. And I was just talking to him actually a few days ago, now that he's fifty and I'm forty-eight, that uh what a strange and amazing coincidence it was for, I mean, we just took for granted that we got along and worked well together and like to work together and both like to do this. And in the intervening years, it's occurred to me that it's a lot more rare and it was a lot more random and lucky to grow up and be best friends with a guy who you work with so well and get along with so well. And he and I sort of compliment one another as writers really well and as filmmakers and creators and It was just luck,
0: you know. It's an amazing, amazing thing to have, you know, from two blocks away in the middle of Massachusetts, these two guys that have such a great career, actually three uh, because your brother, of course. uh, I mean, just amazing thing. But so just so people know, because you mentioned there's this two year roughly age difference. You guys meet, I guess, through your moms. You're already working. You have representation. He wants that. I I believe you helped him. uh, He sort of got it
1: through well, why you? Help and you well, got, let's not have any fun yeah <laughs> you got who into this fucking business right. God damn it be pushing a broom was it wasn't for me <laughs> you can make that the headline New story. right uh, <laughs> uh, no matt was um yeah matt moved, I, I lived in you know in the city and matt moved from newton uh into the city uh when i was 10 uh eight and he was 10 I had already started Voyage of the Mimi. I was doing a little bit of acting. I got a a small kids agent in New York. Matt was really interested in acting. He would proudly tell me about his experience at the Wheelock Community Theater and tell me how I didn't understand real acting because it wasn't about (laughs) your looks. It was the theater. It was about your soul and your integrity. I got a lot of lectures (laughs) from Matt. About, uh, although it's interesting because he hasn't done a play for 25 years so but uh, yeah and then he eventually I said you know we became friends and I said well, why don't you just come down and to you know, meet my agent and uh, you know my agent uh, signed him and upon introduction and I think he I don't even remember if he auditioned or read a little scene or something but uh, yeah and then, he, I, and then he and I used to go down to and it was a different area you know like our parents just let us go to New York from Boston by ourselves <laughs> when we were in high school right. to like audition for you know random stuff. And uh and that's how uh he got into it and he and I started working and it was fun. You know, we I was always like I you know, we would usually go up for the same things, you know. I would want to get it, but if I didn't get it, I wanted Matt to get it. You know, we right. we were never competitive and ugly or bad. We were always learned at a kind of a young age to be supportive and root for each other, and that really Turned out to be an incredibly helpful thing in my life to have a friend who was going through. Because th- this business is very strange. The things that happen to you are strange. The things people do are strange. It's hard to be grounded. It's hard to balance uh, your humility with the kind of confidence that you need to perform and to to take these big risks. And uh, having somebody to reflect on that experience with. Has- has been invaluable for me. I, I don't know how people do it. There must be a tremendous feeling of of, of loneliness or something. Um, mm-hmm. feel mm-hmm. like you're you're on your own. But with with Matt and my brother and and you know at a young age you know became friends with Joaquin and Vince Vaughn and uh, you know I came out to L. A. knew a bunch of guys. McConney. I mean so on and so on. Like so I had a group of friends who were sort of doing what I was doing. Cole Hauser. You know um, and that was really helpful, but obviously Matt, um, you know, most of all, and, uh, he's two blocks away now.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. Well, and I think people should know that there were, you know, it's kind of amazing how it started. We all know, you know, big landmarks like, uh, Goodwill hunting and stuff, but years before that you guys are both, extras in Field of Dreams. You guys are both going out, I believe, for Mickey Mouse Club and Batman and Robin and stuff like that. Um, so there, there was work from an early age. But I think that I want to ask you about somebody who I talked to Casey a lot about on this podcast, and he really spoke glowingly of this person. And I, I think Matt does as well. Who was Jerry Speck
1: Jerry Speck is definitely the most important influence on me creatively, professionally, maybe sort of personal development wise as well. He was our high school theater teacher, but um, as sometimes happens with a really important person in young people's lives, he took on like an he was a uh, sort of, you know, I, my father wasn't present. You know, he taught us how to be responsible, hardworking, ethical, moral. Adults. He took us to take acting, writing, and directing really seriously. He taught us that, um, you know, he let us improvise the scenes and then direct them. And you know, he he did he he kind of introduced this notion that if you were an actor, you didn't have to just be an actor. It wasn't in a silo. That it was all part of this larger process. And gave us a sense of empowerment that we could write and direct and act. And you know, he was somebody that we just worshipped and adored. And and he was an incredibly dedicated wonderful guy an incredible acting teacher a, a ton of people have come through his school and gone on to be successful and work uh, professionally you know um, to various degrees from Manika Larson who the sings musical theater to Max Casella who was in the by night and is a great, to my friend Matt Mayer who is a great actor and, and uh, obviously my brother and Matt and 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 you know uh, but not not You know, his success is not even in my mind measured so much in terms of like who was successful that learned from him, but everybody who took that class, so the vast majority of us were, you know, made better for it. And he was somebody that I thought about a lot when I was doing live by night because I thought, I mean, the the way back because I thought, you know, if you have somebody as a young person, particularly at that kind of critical stage as a teenager. Uh, who really guides you and fosters your development it's it, it can make a massive difference in your life and probably the most single most important moment in my professional life was around graduation. I was finishing uh school, and Jerry asked to talk to me in his office and thought I was in trouble, and I went in there and he said, "Hey, I just want you to know you know uh, if you make the choice, I, you know I think you can do this. I believe in you, I think you can be successful." And for what seemed like a long time, you know, seven years or something of a lot of rejection and struggle and getting turned down, a lot of humiliation, those words kind of kept me going. The fact that this guy who I admired so profoundly believed in me was enough to keep me going. And um, I can't say enough about how important he was to me.
0: Yeah. So one other thing that I guess sort of started before college and only because I guess it, it kind of is a thread that again, will connect with the way back. I think this may have even been pre Jerry Specker at the same time as Jerry Specker. I think your mom sent you to a camp for at risk teens, right? What was that about?
1: I'll tell you what it was about. I made some money, you know, about $8,000 or something for which I mean, it was not uh, a, a high paying gig. And, uh, it was put into an account that was supposed to be for my college money. Uh, when I was a teenager, my father's alcoholism was, you know, quite severe. You know, he he made some bad choices, as you do as an alcoholic, in which I've come in my later years to understand and appreciate and and recognize for for what they are. But it was, it was a mistake, and he. He was working as a janitor, he got drunk, he fell down, he smashed himself up, he got fired, he couldn't pay his rent, and he asked me for money. He asked me to basically pay his his rent and his bills, Um, and I figured out how to crack into this trust fund, Uh, not a trust fund, because I didn't inherit it, it was money, that was for college, this college fund by talking a local (laughs) woman who was a notary into signing something for me and taking it to the bank. And anyway, got access to the money, spent the money mostly on, on giving it to my dad for rent, but also some of it on like, you know, like pizza and beer and video <laughs> games and dumb shit. that you do. When you're... So it went through like the eight grand pretty fast. And when it ran out, I didn't want to tell my mom that uh, I said, I didn't want to get my dad in trouble. And so she thought I was on drugs and sent me to a like a wayward youth summer experience on the Colorado river where you like, you know, it a week living alone. It was horrible. Uh, I hated it. Um, but, uh, I did it. I did it. it was like, a, you know, and I, it was me and a bunch of other, you know, troubled kids, which just means like a lot of assholes and you on a river, you know, trying to paddle that, uh, through the, wasn't even the grand Canyon. And, um, and yeah, that was, so I, I went to a, uh, experience for troubled youth than uh, when I was
0: a teenager. Well, you know, you obviously uh, uh, came out of that and it comes time for college. Matt goes off to Harvard. You initially, I know, go off to University of Vermont. Then after a few months left there and ultimately went for a few more months to Occidental. And I think that that was a bad experience, but one that you seem to have taken some inspiration from, because I guess... The they were not receptive to your <laughs> form of creativity, yeah. right? Yeah, Is that fair to put it? Yeah, basically
1: what happened was uh Matt, Matt was always making good decisions and I was always making wonders, <laughs> it seemed like earlier. <laughs> Matt got good grades, I was I was depressed, I was having problems at home, I was cutting school, I didn't do very well traditionally in school. Uh not that I ever let it make me think I wasn't smarter than Matt, because I always knew I was, <laughs> despite him having gone to Harvard, but uh He went to Harvard. And then, yeah. And then I went to UVM because I was in love with my high school girlfriend and followed her. And then she dumped me when I got there. And it was miserable. And I was just really depressed and and like, fuck this. I hate this. I want to do what I want to do. So I moved to L.A. and just like packed up my stuff. And, took you know, when you're 18, you're just like stupid and naive enough to think that like that's actually a good idea. Just like throw your stuff (laughs) in a bag and go to Los Angeles, even though you don't know the fuck you're doing, you don't know anybody. So I did, and then my mother was like, "I really want you to, you know, try going to college." So I did um, some kind of independent study, continuing, you know, off campus type uh, continuing education at Occidental College. A college of which, uh, for a brief time, I think maybe I was the most famous alumni until uh, Barack Hussein Obama yes. was elected president yes. of the United States, <laughs> which point I was permanently eclipsed. Um, but uh, I, And I went to school, Alex, and, I was, and I majored in a bunch of stuff. I did work hard. I was a history, Middle Eastern studies and American history major, which kind of came in handy for, for Argo, and um, mm-hmm. I was also an English major, and And Matt at the time had left Harvard and moved out to Eagle Rock, where we were living, and uh, before it was cool, there was no, like, like <laughs> bars and comic bookstores, it was just, like, Tommy's Burgers, and that was it. And, um, and it was cheap, and, and it was off campus, so it was close to Occidental, where I was taking classes, and I... We were writing Goodwill Hunting, and so I uh, we had assignment to do twenty pages of writing. And
0: I I just want to interject that you were writing Goodwill Hunting because Matt had at this point what come out to Matt, he had left he had done like yeah. a couple of years at
1: Harvard uh, and then left basically he dropped yeah. out. I had gone back and workshopped with him. David Wheeler, who was friends with my father, was a teacher at Harvard. Was also running ART. He had a Matt had run through all the acting classes, so he was taking a directing class. For his directing class, he wanted to do something, so. Uh, we performed a couple of scenes that, uh, in his directing class that sort of later became Goodwill Hunting, and and, and we talked about these characters. And at that time, you got to remember this was when like you know Reservoir Dogs and Slacker and Clerks uh, and and do the right thing. You know, people the sort of DIY thing was just starting. This idea that you didn't have to have a studio make your movie if you just like wrote a cheap script and. You could kind of make it yourself. And so we thought, oh, you know, this would be a great acting reel for us because we thought we were good at the Boston accent and we thought that mm-hmm. would be a showcase for us. And that was really our only ambition for Good wanting Hunting was to be a, a kind of an acting, you know, reel. And so mm-hmm. he moved out there. He said, well, you know, let's write it. Let's write it. And he moved out there to write it with me. We were working on it. I took in 20 pages to my creative writing class because I figured, hey, I'm already writing. I might as well turn this in. And the professor, I read some of it, and the professor stopped me and then said it wasn't a acceptable literary form uh, and kind of <laughs> embarrassed me in front of the class. And I got up, walked out. It was the last day I ever went to class there. And it was the, I said, fuck it, this is not obviously not. Yeah. And that was that. And then we, we took yeah. another couple of years to, to finish the script and then sell it and so on. But that was right. the other genesis.
0: Well, in, in that interim period, you started to get – cast I know in, in, uh, you know, movies that people were seeing, but it was interesting pre, I guess, chasing Amy, it's always sort of playing a version of the asshole, right? A bully, uh, school ties, dazed and confused, mall rats, sort of a a jerk in those movies. And then Kevin Smith, who had done mall rats, I guess comes with chasing Amy, which I read was a 225 grand project goes to Sundance. And that was the beginning of people starting to say, wait a minute, we should pay attention to this guy?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I I was I, I grew a foot in a year my junior year in high school. So I went from 5'2 to 6'2 and ended up just a couple inches bigger than that. So it was really big and that was a little kind of puffy and bad and awkward and just kind of like ungainly. And uh, so every time I would go in and read for the lead, they'd be like, you're not right for this, but what about for the dickhead? <laughs> we see you more as an asshole and i thought oh that's so nice of you um and so the, yeah that, i was always throwing kids against their locker that was i thought i was going to be doomed to like that kind of thing for the rest of my career and got the same kind of you know asshole part in that was cast by don phillips who also cast me in the same role in daisy confused uh for mall rats and um i just you know, openly sort of like sucked up to Kevin and pandered to him and was like, you know, I'm a nice guy. You should work with me again. I'm really a lot of fun. And I'm really not a dick. I don't know why I keep getting cast I was like, as a jerk. And and uh, and he wrote Basing Amy for me. And uh, the studio want, did not want to use me or Joey or Jason. They had other established stars in mind and they were going to give him a real budget. They said, you want to use your friends, as they put it. You have to make the movie for $250,000. He agreed to. Uh, my first lead, it was the first person who kind of believed in me, we shot it in 20 days on 16 millimeter. I lived on his couch, Red Bank, New Jersey uh, but I loved, I loved it, I got to play a real part, of, the movie was about something I didn't beat anybody up um, and, <laughs> and then that, and then after that I got a movie called Going All the Way, the Mark Pellington directed with Jeremy Davies and, um, and Rachel Weiss and, and those two movies went to Sundance and they were kind of both hits at Sundance. So all of a sudden I remember thinking like, this is what Mel Gibson feels like. Everyone's seen my movie. <laughs> I This was like before, you know, Sundance was such a manic kind of right. of brand promotion and Instagramming and stuff. Um, but yeah, that was my my kind of break. And, so, and then Chase and Amy did okay. Like it actually was released and like people who worked at record stores would sometimes recognize me and stuff. And so I had, you know, some... Uh, you know, some sense of success before before Goodwill Hunting, and and some right. sort of way to argue that I should was qualified to play the part in the movie. But that was the chief impediment to to getting it because right. no one wanted us to play the parts.
0: Well, so Chasing Amy, that Sundance, obviously, is the beginning of '97. At the end of '97 is when people finally see Goodwill Hunting after all these years of you guys, you know, working on it. And I know it's something that you've talked about before, but with the 25th anniversary literally coming up. I guess now next year, if you wouldn't mind humoring me by just, you know, it's one of these stories like Rocky, like Reservoir Dogs, where, you know, the the creative people behind it insisted on remaining central to it and actually got it done. Um, and I know there was a lot of pressure to, you know, people wanted the script, but they wanted Brad and Leo or, uh, you know, then the whole thing with the the you know, inserting a scene about the guys jerking each other off just to make sure people are actually paying attention. So anyway, if if you wouldn't mind just uh, sharing a slightly condensed version of just this origin story so that people can uh, maybe take a little inspiration from it. Yeah.
1: I mean, we were just like, we never even, it never even occurred to us to just sell it and walk away from it. Like that was, that had nothing to do with the point of why we want to make it because we wanted to be actors. We wanted to be in it. We wanted to prove that we could be actors. So it wasn't even like um, we were t- ever tempted, and in fact, so we sold it. We actually got. It. I thought I was set for life. We got six hundred thousand dollars, split it two ways, <laughs> and then after taxes and agents, I had like one hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. I was gonna retire. Bought a Jeep G- right. Cherokee, like beer and pizza <laughs> for six months, and I was broke. So it was <laughs> the early lesson in uh, saving your money. But we we got that. we were at Castle Rock. Castle Rock had some really good notes. Developed us away from kind of the. The sort of uh, more kind of genre version of the story and more into the personal version of it. And I they I deserve a lot of credit for that. Rob Reiner, in particular, was really helpful in saying, like, get rid of that stuff, you know, because we were like, should it be, it felt had a little more Beverly Hills Cop kind of. I, although I love Midnight Run and think it's a great, you know, that was one of my most influential movies. He thought, like, you know, the guys were kind of cheap. people, were surveilling Will and following him and he was spoiling them. Anyway, they talked us into getting rid of that. But then they wanted um, somebody to direct it who worked at the company. And we felt like, well, wait a minute, you know, we didn't even get the chance to send it to anybody that's a, you know, director that we've always dreamed of working with. If we get 20 passes, like great, but let's give it a shot. They got offended. They said you can have the movie back, but you have to get someone else to buy it in 45 days. And if not, you're fired and you get tickets to the premiere if you're lucky. <laughs> um, and but we just were like, well, we, there's no real option for us. See, but yeah, it's not to see someone else do it. But and so we went back around to the people who've been on it before. And of course, it's like going and asking the girl you, you know who wanted to go to the prom with you, you know, and you said no to. it. now you change your mind because the other girl said no. <laughs> well, they take you and all the other studios. All of a sudden, passed on the movie. Kevin Smith brought it to Miramax because I was doing Chasing Amy at the time. I, he. He, he told me he read the script on the toilet and stayed on the toilet the whole time. He was so riveted. and I told him he stays in the toilet that long anyway. But um, he, he gave it to John Gordon at Miramax. John Gordon really liked it. Miramax bought it within the time frame. And then we went around and agreed to have us as actors because that was part of the, our, our Asian Patrick whitesoul who started out with us was a young agent out of the mailroom. When he signed us, he sold Good Wanting. It was sort of the first big thing for all three of us. I love Patch of my best friends and been with me through really thick and thin to this to this day. He's a wonderful guy and the best agent in the world. And, and more than that, like a great guy. But he, but And then the process at Miramax of getting a director, we had a very famous director who screen tested us, did an expensive screen test. We performed it exactly how we did in the movie ultimately. And he told Miramax that he would do the movie, but he would do it with Brad and Leo. We had people that couldn't get Final Cut and wouldn't get, We said, the Matt wanted to do it, but wouldn't get Final Cut. We met with Mel Gibson, which I was like brave had just come out. And it was like, oh, I love the script. I hate the fucking title. We were like, fuck the title. We hate the title. We'll change the title. We'll call them the fucking movie Mel Gibson. And uh, he was like kind of dithering because he was going to do Fahrenheit 911. And we said, hey man, like, you know, I know you got a million He's Like this is our only one. He said, oh, give me 30 days, true to his word, 30 days later, he said, I, I can't promise I'm going to do it next, so I'm going to let it go. We, they had a bunch of directors they wanted that you know, were, were small directors. And eventually, because of uh, my brother, New uh, knew Joaquin, who had done To Die For with Gus, uh, Gus got the script. Gus really wanted to do it. And Gus had developed a movie that at the time was called The Mayor of Castro Street with Robin Williams, which later was Milk. They didn't end up making it, but he knew Robin. He gave Robin the script. And all of a sudden, once Robin Williams, who in 1995 was the absolute biggest star in Hollywood, said, yes, you know, that was it. Movie was getting made. Yeah. $15 million below right. the line. Robin got five against 20 points, which turned out to be a good <laughs> deal for Robin for two and a half weeks' work. Yes. And uh, <laughs> I loved it. It was wonderful. And it was the first time I met and hung out with anybody really famous. And it was like, wow, this is intense. And the thing was, like, he had done, you know, Good Morning Vietnam, Awakenings, you know, like um, uh, uh, the Terry Gilliam movie, like all these incredible films. And and he'd walk down the street and everyone would in Boston and be like, Nano, Nano, Mark for Mark. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> all right. So then they made the movie with uh, Because of Robin, and he, and he was fine having us be in it. And he was obviously great and helpful and wonderful and, and it's just a charming, brilliant, lovely, wonderful man. And um, and then we made it. And then you know, um, we they picked uh, a December fourth or seventh or something for the movie to come out because they heard that the other movie that was coming out wasn't very good and wasn't going to work. It was called Titanic. And, um, <laughs> and but we kind of actually lived in Titanic's wake. You know, they kept yeah. making twenty-five million every weekend, and we kept making none. You know, and yeah, I didn't yeah. realize it, but like it's the only movie I had that like didn't drop week to week.
0: Right. Well, let me actually hone in on that period. So we're from December '97 through March '98, basically up to and including Oscar night. What stands out most in your memory?
1: It's a very surreal time. I mean, I remember that. You know, now I know there's these like you know schmoozy Oscar parties and people throw them, and they feel kind of like. Very different. But at the time, our agent, you know, Patrick, the CIA, who Patrick was with at the time, basically had their what was their kind of Oscar Golden Globe party, but it was sort of a Google hunting party. So we thought it was a party for us, like our party. So we invited all our <laughs> friends from high school and our families. And we went there to this, it was at some bar in like West Hollywood on sunset. And then like there we are with all these like guys in Boston, like the drinks are free, you don't gotta pay. And then there was like Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg. It was like hallucinatory. You know what I mean? Do mm-hmm. more, every single famous person, you know, I, I thought they were there for good wanting. I didn't realize people just sort of kind of matter, you know, went to these things as a matter of, of course. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I remember talking to Phil Hoffman that night for a long time. It was incredible. And I remember our friend Bubba from home was like, introduce me to Tom Cruise. And I was like, I don't fucking know Tom Cruise. It's <laughs> your party. I was like, I don't think this is my party. Went over there and was like, hey, uh, Mr. Cruz, this is Bubba. He's my friend from home. <laughs> Bubba's like, hey, you're a short fuck, aren't you? just thought, oh, my God. I'm going to get kicked out of Hollywood before I get in. Um, and it was just very weird and surreal.
0: Probably never more so right than you when you sit down on Oscar night. And they start, and Billy Crystal starts singing about Matt and Ben. Right? This is
1: exactly the moment that I remember the most. We went. It never hit me until I just thought, "We're not going to win. This is crazy." We lost. We didn't win the WGA award. Uh, Jim Brooks won. I didn't do. You know, I was twenty four. You know what I mean? I was like uh, an assistant. You know what I mean? And and like <laughs> I, I just it didn't hadn't hit me. And I remember talking to Matt, and we were like, "We're not going to win, and this is all going to kind of blow over." And we never really believed. We didn't understand, we didn't have the ability to contextualize kind of what it meant. And then Billy Crystal came out, who literally the year before in Somerville, Massachusetts, we had watched the show from our a shitty little apartment and done an Oscar <laughs> pool and watched Billy Crystal. And then there he was. And then he starts singing. Bang, 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 bang. And then I thought, like, I am really, this is like one of those weird dreams that you have, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then they brought out, you know, uh, Lemon and Math. To present screenplay, and I thought, huh. And then I thought maybe they think we're gonna win because they're doing (laughs) theirs like, and we and and when they read our names, it was as shocking. We took our moms. Everyone's like, it's so nice you took your moms. We're like, who the fuck else are we gonna take? Like, we didn't have a (laughs) choice. Our moms are gonna let us. They take somebody else. Like, and and so we we win. And it's like, it's just like a, it's sort of like the, if you ever like spun out in a car on the freeway or something like, you know, that feeling of being out of your body and kind of disconnected. I remember Al Baldwin grabbed us off stage and was like, remember this, remember this. And I was just like, I'll remember you grabbing me. I don't know. Um, And, and then from, and then because of Titanic uh, that I, I think is the highest rated oscars still to this day
0: yes it, it, exactly exactly and you're still the youngest screenwriter winner ever the youngest
1: <laughs> yeah 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 and then and then i was just gonna say interesting because that <clears throat> is sort of what was the day i feel like that we kind of became famous we became famous right. because so many people watched us on tv win that prize and it was such a good story and the sort of soap opera of our lives was as you know, interesting and this would go on to be sort of the story of my life, but the (laughs) as as interesting as what what the thing itself was. And I remember doing Shakespeare in Love and and, and Good Hunting hadn't come out there. So go from America, where I was at the time, you know, you do selfies, you did autographs. And uh, (laughs) that's that's gone by the wayside. Nobody (laughs) wants a fucking autograph. And and I'd go to England and no one know who I was and I fly back into dogma in the (laughs) United States to have it. So I had this really weird back and forth experience of what it was like to be a a, a celebrity, I guess, and Mm -hmm, and a mm -hmm. totally unknown, anonymous person. And it was really sort of fascinating. And then and then, yeah, my life really profoundly changed.
0: Well, and on on that note. So, yes, there's Shakespeare in Love, where a year later, your your movie wins best picture over Matt's movie, Saving Private Ryan. (laughs)
1: Don't think I didn't Um, lord it over him. (laughs)
0: And there's also, uh, as you say, dogma. But I think the two that probably people most remember from that time, that period, of course, are both Bay Bruckheimer movies, Armageddon and Pearl Harbor, which cost a lot of money, made a lot of money, put you right in the middle of this Hollywood machine for the first time to the extent that, you know, they're I, I know these stories you've talked about where they're changing teeth and they're just completely you are now in the middle of the machine. And I just wonder how you adapted to that when on the one hand it's, yeah, I mean, it's gotta be cool. You're now, literally, this is what, uh, these are movie star roles. On the other hand, I, I wonder what it's doing, you know, when you're not acting.
1: Well, Armageddon and Pearl Harbor are two very different experiences and things. Armageddon was, I, I, I auditioned for it while we were shooting Good Hunting, you know, I was up against a bunch of other guys, you know, old fashioned, way got the part, you know, by reading for it. And uh, and then Jerry was like, "Your teeth are terrible looking. Go to my dentist. Fix your teeth." <laughs> I was like, well, "I don't have the money. This is too expensive." I was like, "No, no, no, no studio pay for it." But, and I was like, well, "The studio will pay." Those were words <laughs> that I would come to use many times, I but would um, come to rely on. But uh, yeah, they changed, and I didn't. Even, I didn't even think it was that weird until I was like sitting there thinking, "This guy changed. I'm putting on veneer. Like I'm an oil driller. Why do I have to have <laughs> straight teeth?" Like, what's the, but, you know, I didn't, we didn't have enough braces when I was a kid and they they fixed my teeth. And then I was really interested in filmmaking. So for me, Armageddon was really fascinating on a a filmmaking level. I mean, they had all the toys, the techno cranes, all the cameras, all the dollies, all the big stages at Disney. It was like the high, you know, I remember thinking that we could make a hundred, you know, uh, no, we could have made something like well, fifty or sixty uh, chasing Amys for what we made Armageddon, for. and uh, and also they were you know Jerry had a really smart instinct which was to get a lot of kind of interesting people from the independent world like Billy Bob and Owen and Steve Buscemi and um, and guys like that to to be in the movie. So I felt like you know I had something kind of in common with you know some of those people. And I remember hanging out with Billy, and he had won Best Screenplay. I think the year before for Sling Blade. Yeah, like exactly. You, you got like half a fucking Oscar, right? That's what you got. You got a, <laughs> they, they cut it in half and give Matt the half and they give him two thirds. I'm in <laughs> um, and, and I really liked Owen and Billy and, and Mike, Big Mike, an amazing guy. And so I just had fun. And Bruce was like the leader of the gang. He loves to make people feel comfortable and have fun. I mean, he would occasionally sometimes take your lines away. Taken for himself. <laughs> like, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe what you say is uh, you know what, maybe it's not even a line. But uh, but Bruce was so, so actually so kind and wonderful to me and so much fun. And so that was like, Kevin, that was like getting to see the real Hollywood. That was what I dreamed of, like mm-hmm. big Hollywood movies. You know, how they really worked. I mean, you know, Brockheimer, Top Gun, you know, it was like couldn't have been more of the epitome of sort of what's going on in the 90s. And then the movie really worked, Aerosmith and the whole thing. And it was, yeah, it all sort of came together. Pearl Harbor, you know, Jerry and Michael sort of talked about wanting to do something more like Titanic and what they, you know, Michael sort of ended up. He has this very keen eye, this very keen sensibility, and is in, in a way a kind of an auteur in the sense that you always know a Michael Bay movie. But like making Armageddon in the Second World War, in some ways, was <laughs> at least in the critics' views, uh, sure. a, a discordant. However, people, like that was my first introduction to the press, sort of being, you know, like they, everyone was saying, "Oh, what a bomb for Armors! It's like a bomb, five hundred million dollars." Like, yeah, I had yeah, a bomb yeah. like that every, I wish I would have <laughs> bombs like that every time. But, you know, it was like, it was a little bit of the beginning of a of a kind of a, um, uh, you know, blowback, you know, kind of thing. Like, hey, you have you're too, too much, too young, you shouldn't be as successful, sort of resentment, that kind of thing. And it was, to be fair, kind of cheesy. I mean, that's the thing I didn't like about Pearl Harbor, the the chief problem I had, I loved the I mean, we did this incredible training for it. This pre Ranger training was the hardest experience of my life. Two weeks at Fort Lightning, which I definitely would have quit if, if I thought it wouldn't have come out in the tabloids. It almost killed me. And I loved the other guys, and I loved working with the veterans and and honoring them, and being at Pearl Harbor. But filmmaking wise, it was sort of like, you know, I would say like I'll just look at Kate, and you'll kind of know, and like, I'm gonna say I love you. And I was like, okay, I'll say I love you. And then he was like, let's do a push in, and then. they need to push it and you say, I love you. And then there's a big swell. And it was just sort of the (laughs) more is more school. And it, and um, in that sense, I was sort of disappointed because I, I I had hoped to do something other than Armageddon again on an aircraft carrier.
0: Well, so you mentioned blowback and I just, you know, the thing that's amazing in kind of really studying your life and career for this is just the number of, it's like a roller coaster. And and more. I know that is the case in a lot of Hollywood careers, but this is more than most. And I, I guess the first kind of dip, if we can call it that, and we know you came out of it, so I think hopefully it's not something you mind looking at analytically, is just you come out of that period, and then there's Daredevil in 2003, Surviving Christmas in 2004, Jersey Girl in 2004, Gillie in 2005, and in the midst of that, the whole as the tabloid world is exploding with us weekly and in touch and okay and all of that shit this whole benefer thing and i just wonder do you feel that in hindsight did you did you guys do anything to bring about the attention and hostility that came around or was it purely just these guys needing product and you happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time
1: that's pretty good description of that time and no i don't mind talking about it at all it was interesting i sort of had to make it in the Business twice because I became so cold and so not cool and so out of it that I had to sort of totally reinvent my career, you know. And it was harder because now I was starting, before I was just starting at the, you know, at the the start line. And now I had to start sort of a mile further back, you know, um, because people not only had no perception of me, but a, a negative one fostered by a really reckless and irresponsible tabloid press that would just write things that weren't true. And as you, Very astutely described it. We happened, you know, there's always a story of the month, a story of the six, whatever it is, you know. And we, uh, me dating Jennifer Lopez happened to be that tabloid story at the time when that business grew exponentially. When they realized there's there's actually 10 times a bigger audience for our product than we're selling to. So there was this proliferation. Us weekly went from a sort of celebrity friendly interview thing to a tabloid. The tabloids exploded, the internet started, you had your, you know, the Perez Hiltons, all that kind of stuff. And they needed something to write about. And we were that thing. And so I think there was a natural reaction to like, wait a minute, why am I hearing about you every day and seeing you on every newsstand? That, that's would engender, enormous amount of resentment anyway. Just that sort of like, mm-hmm. and there is like, even you asked me, but when you think about it, the answer is so obvious. Like, why in the world would I have wanted that? Why would I have mm-hmm. sought that out? People it's still, to this day, they'll go like, you know, I see you out there like, in the paparazzi and the pictures, it's like, yes, I left my house and took out the track. <laughs> it's not like I'm trying to, and they well, you're taking a path walk, as if if you leave your house, you're only doing so in the hopes that you could be so lucky that you could end up as the sixth item in the Daily Mail, you know? It's <laughs> like, it's absurd, and particularly in that case, There was this. At first, it was like Dick and Liz. It was this sort of infatuation. What an interesting couple! And then there was a ton of resentment, a ton of resentment against me, a ton of resentment against Jennifer. The irony is not lost on me that Jennifer now. I mean, people were so fucking mean about her. Sexist, racist, you know, ugly, vicious shit was written about her in ways that uh, if you wrote it now, you would literally be fired for saying those things. You said. Now, it's like she's lionized and respected for the work she did, where she came from, what she accomplished, as well as she fucking should be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I see her accomplishments as like, I, I, I would say you have a better chance from the Bronx at being a Latina of ending up as like uh, you know Sotomayor on the Supreme Court than you do having Jennifer Lopez's career and being who she is at 50 years old today. That mm-hmm. is not that one has more value than the other, I understand right, right, that, but right, right, right. Th- that, you know, d- just on a pure odds level, on a pure hard work, I-, I-, I don't think I met anybody who worked any harder than Jennifer Lopez. And she was very much like a, a, um, the kind of girl that I went to high school with. It was a very socioeconomically mixed, ethnically mixed place. I didn't, those kinds of differences that sort of seemed to shock America uh, <laughs> were meaningless to me. And- And then there was this sort of idea that you want this, you want this attention. And that coinciding with not Daredevil, which was not a good movie, even though fucking Kevin Feige, who is the (laughs) absolutely have to say the greatest producer, most successful producer who's ever lived, he's the only guy in the world who, if he told me, like, I know what the audience wants, this is what we do, I would believe him 100%. (laughs) That fucker knows. His audience, <laughs> like no producer, he's a genius. I mean, Absolutely, like a master sort of, you know, circus. Um, you know, what do you call those guys who are the the, the ringmaster at the circus? Like he knows exactly yeah. how much to wink at the audience, exactly when to pull at the heartstrings, exactly when to do the effects, how many jokes, what the sensibility, what the tone is. Because everybody, you no know, people didn't know to run away from the pajamas or embrace it or make it serious. Anyway, Kevin had a low lower down. I was like. Why don't we all just fucking turn to Kevin? That's what we do. Guys, you look like a a producer on Daredevil. Um, but uh, Daredevil was not great, but but it was it. And then to have the to to have that tablet experience coupled with Jersey Girl is not a bad movie at all. Uh, no, Drive and Christmas is not a very good movie, and Gilly turned out to be. A, a, a kind of a disaster, but it's not like people say, Oh, it's the famous bomb. It's like actually, if you watch it, and 99% of people who say, Oh, this is so bad, obviously I haven't seen it. The problem with Geely was, you know, first of all, Marty is a brilliant director and a brilliant guy. Did movies, you know, like Midnight Run, like Sentimental Woman. I mean, he's a he, Beverly Hills cop. I mean, this is a guy who understands filmmaking. What happened was, you know, he was trying to, sort of, he, he had done Meet Joe Black, and he was sort of trying to do this story about a guy who's a lesbian, she leaves him halfway through, he ends up getting killed, it's kind of, a, I used to say, we're kind of making a Polish art movie here uh, for Sony, <laughs> and then um, the Jennifer, then I started dating Jennifer, and the tabloids were sort of so interested in it in a positive way at first, that the studio decided, oh, no, 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 they gotta stay together at the end, that's what America wants, America wants to see these two in love, and So we did five reshoots to sort of put a horse's head on a cow's body and to try to make a romantic comedy (laughs) out of this movie that was already a weird movie to begin with. And yet I died on the PCH and a cow's hand. And then it was so, so it it was never going to work. And the name was funny. And it was so interesting. Let's
0: let's acknowledge, though. I, I mean, you got there was a lot of pile on, and I'm, I don't, I think in hindsight, it was clearly. Excessive, but you mentioned that Jennifer came out of it really well. It's kind of amazing how I'm sure it didn't feel quick for you in that moment. But if you look chronologically, the year after Geely, Hollywoodland, two thousand six, your one of your best performances as George Reeves. A year after that, you're directing for the first time a feature, which you I know always wanted to do. I had seen a quote where Patrick. White Sawyer agent, who you mentioned before, said that in that low point, he says, quote, we talked to each other and said, it's going to be a long road back, but we will get there. Close quote, which actually it's funny. It sounds like the way back. But anyway, you really came out of that. And it's not the only time you came out of the shitter, in a sense, stronger. And I just wonder how you explain that.
1: Well, that you know, I part of how I explain that is is that it's I'm just lucky to sort of I, had, I was depressed. I had depression when I was younger. That was very difficult. It was before people understood it, before there was medication. I kind of had to develop a sense of, like, I'm going to get through this no matter what, no matter how shitty it feels. And I had, you know, my various issues, my childhood as well, and uh, sort of had to develop. It was either, like, going to be up to me or it wasn't going to happen. And, you know, every any other agent in the world besides Patrick would have dropped me, handed me off to the junior guy, you know, what? he didn't do that. He was like, we're going to fucking make this better. We're stuck with me. That guy has been, you know, on the phone with me, whether I was successful or hot or ice cold. And in Hollywoodland, as you mentioned, was really the thing. We had to fight like crazy. Patrick's the reason I got it. We knew it was a good acting part. I never thought to myself, I have no talent. I really am an asshole. I really am some jerk-offs, shallow frat guy, whatever. I'd never even been inside a fraternity, you know? Not that I have anything (laughs) against it. It's just that that's not who I was. Um, Nor was I a a sort of craven, fame-seeking, you know? I remember this guy, Rick McAllen, I think was his name. He was the producer. He was basically a glorified line producer of the middle three Star Wars movies. And he did an interview at that time where he said, Somebody said to him, well, you know, isn't it a little, a little much that, like, Anakin Skywalker, you know, mur- slaughters Jedi children? And he goes, I don't know, Ben Affleck, look at Ben Affleck, he'd kill children. I just thought, like, Ugh. what the fuck is wrong? Like, to, to have the, yeah. to be so cavalier uh, as yeah. to say that about anybody that you don't know.
0: Yeah, dehumanizing. It's
1: is so, but it just, it, it's not even an indictment of him. I don't know him. I've never met him. I don't really care about him. Um, it's just demonstrative of the degree to which it was kind of permit. Once you becomes cool to make fun of somebody, then everybody makes fun of them. It's sort right. of like, I remember in high school, there'd be fights all the time and always two people would get in a fight. And then all of a sudden five other guys come over and kick somebody on the ground, you know, like to get a chance to right. kick somebody just for right. the, the joy of doing right. it. I, I felt like I knew that, first of all, I knew I wanted to direct. I knew I could write. I could generate my own material. I didn't have to, I didn't, mm-hmm depend the first time on other people's yeah. largesse or, uh, accepting mm-hmm. me to, to, depend it on myself and my work. And I thought like, I can do that. I want to direct, I hate being famous. I don't mind if I'm not famous. I thought to get away from all this. I can't stand it. Uh, I'd be happy to never be another magazine again. I was actually in the very worst position you can be in, in this business, which is that you can sell magazines, but not movie tickets. And, mm-hmm. um, and I, uh, you know, Patrick chased down that Hollywoodland role, and um, Alan Coulter believed in me, and I got a chance to work with with Diane and Robin Honey and 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 Adrian Brody, and uh, I loved the part. Obviously, I could identify mm-hmm. with the with Reeves and then sort of having been stuck as the you know having done Daredevil and doing Superman and being disillusioned by it and being disappointed by his experience and cut out from from here to eternity and. Uh, so anyway, I was really proud of that performance. And then I I spent, it does, it seems, I guess, like a short amount of time, but I spent every single day wholly and completely dedicated to, um, you know, writing a movie to direct where I was going to like yeah. demonstrate the, because people were just saying, you're worthless, you're talented, you're a hack, you're a CAD, you're a nobody, you're shit. And I really, I guess I function well and I feel like I have something to prove. And I was like, I'm going to make yeah. a good movie if it kills me.
0: You know, meanwhile, I think gone baby gone was one of the best feature directorial debuts of any actor turned director. I still, I still think it might be your, uh, I love it as much as any of your movies, but, um, too. from that, I know, I know it didn't make a lot of money and yet opened in uh, six
1: for you place number six, I didn't
0: six. Okay. But I mean, the people who saw it appreciated it. And I guess fortunately one of those was somebody at, at, Warner Brothers because, yeah, Yeah. Robinoff. And so the town comes along and, and, you know, this is now three years later, 2010. uh, And it's different in the sense that here you're going to, it's a bigger budget. You're going to be actually acting in a movie you're directing. But it was really meaningful to you to be a two-time director as opposed to a one-time. Why was that?
1: Yeah, well, I just read a statistic that like something like 90% of the feature directors in the DGA have only directed one feature which illustrated how you know, the, it's actually more appealing to people, the promise of the unknown, than to have directed one mediocre movie and to think like, well, I don't <laughs> want a mediocre, maybe this guy will be Paul Tom Sanders. So um, I knew that the really success as a director, for me, meant getting a chance to make a second movie. Uh, the the Gami Beyond was never going to be a big commercial movie, and it ended up actually going uh, into a little bit of profit because of um, home video sales and stuff afterward. And I'm enormously proud of it. The opening of that movie is still probably my favorite thing I'm, I've ever done, just because. And Harry did a great score, and my brother, and the the the, the sort of fusion of a, a sort of documentary filmmaking with a fictional narrative was the big kind of experiment of that movie, as well as the moral ambiguity of it. And uh, I loved wow. it. I, I was I was proud of it. So I didn't really care. to make any money. That it wasn't about money. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd been at right. five hundred million dollars, and people weren't saying nice things, um, yeah. but it got good reviews. And I hadn't had, you know, a, like a tomato score above a six in uh, quite <laughs> a few years. And, um, and so that helped. And then, yeah. but it didn't make a lot of money. So I was surprised when Jeff Robinoff and Sue Kroll said that we want, they want to have a meeting. And they said, we think you're a great director, a great actor. We think you can do this. We've been developing this movie, had a director who, who wanted a, too high of a budget, can you do it for this number? Um, and it was based on a book and the draft was a kind of went a different way than what I wanted to. So I was focused on a different aspect of the story. I said, well, if I can rewrite it, I think I can rewrite good enough. I'll rewrite it for free. You don't have to pay me if I don't want to do it. And, and let me just write it and see. And then, um, yeah, I was like, I had my shot, and I was like, okay, well, it's my second one. This one's got to be. Then I realized they all have to be good. You know what I mean? It's not like <laughs> you get off the hook, uh, right? And right. Um, and I had a great time. And in that and that movie was about trying to show that I could kind of not just point the camera at actors and do a performance uh, and, and writing based, you know, environmental little movie, but actually do some of the more cinematic Hollywood stuff, car chases and shootouts yeah. and use that as a kind of a candy shell to, to wrap the dramatic story in. Uh, yeah, that was
0: great. And it did well. And you were good in it, which is not always easy for a filmmaker to, to be good in their movie they're directing. Cause I guess it's easy to lose uh, objectivity and all of that. But uh, I want to note, first of all, you get great, performances out of your actors and I think we should acknowledge that so aside from Casey being great in in Gone Baby Gone Amy Ryan gets nominated then for The Town Jeremy Renner gets nominated for Argo which where I'm going to come to now Arkin gets nominated and just though I I mean so the thing with with Argo so Town makes a lot of money uh Argo comes along I guess I don't know if they initially were thinking for you to act in it or direct it always they sent it, it to me to act
1: and direct and Chris yeah. Terrio wrote it based on a uh, thing was at Clooney's company and, uh, they yeah. and and it was really very much kind of up my alley the, I can't I mean I can't take credit for for Alan Arkin because he's been brilliant <laughs> for a long time but Amy Ryan and Jeremy Renner both came in and auditioned for those movies you know so I do like just you know holding the paper in their hand and it wasn't like you know, you cast like whatever. You're like, yes, Kate Blanchett, I'm a genius. I, I hired another actor got nominated. It's kind of like, well, is it really you? Um, not that it was me in either of those cases. Either they're both brilliant actors, but uh, I care about acting. And I knew that that was coming from that place. That was going to be my kind of strength. And so I relied on the actors and sort of tried to give them the sense that they could do anything and try to be their uh, Jerry Speca and and lift them up oh, and yeah. empower them. And and I've really been happy with, with all the performances and we've yeah. worked really hard and it's, it's, great. it's more fun working with somebody also who's like psyched to have the job, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Instead of you're like 45 minutes later and you're like, hey, are <laughs> going to have the trailer or are we all just going to get, it? you know right. what I mean? Like, um, so it was fun. Yeah. And then Argo came along and, and it was also a, 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 Warners wanted me to do it. They, they, again, wanted me to do it for a certain number because look, if we, Argo happened today and it's only been eight years or whatever, for sure, it'll be a streaming series. For sure, it's yeah. a ten part, yeah. you know, uh, whatever Hulu thing or something. Um, uh, but they were like willing to make it as a feature and um, and let me cast these, you know, a, a lot of uh, different actors. But also had Goodman and Arkin, and me, so it was. Uh, but it was uh, that for that movie it was like the big question was are the are the tones going to work together? Is it going to work that you're going to believe in the ho- world of Hollywood? And the gravity of people being hostages and having their lives at risk in Iran. And I remember shooting the scene at the smokehouse with uh, where me and John Goodman talk about who's going to take on what, pretend to be what role in the exfiltration. And that was the day where I, I looked at John Goodman, like Goodman's performance, and he kind of encapsulated. He both took it seriously and understood the absurdity of it. And I thought, like. That's it. And I, I, it. I really, uh, I've been carried along um, by a lot of really great people who I owe my success to in very large measure. Sure. For
0: sure, Let me mention, I mean, I saw that movie at that very first screening at Telluride, which was the beginning of an incredible fall for you, where I just wonder, you know, again, the experience for you, forget, we've talked about the creative process, but just the emotional experience of having come back from the dead, you basically had been written off by a lot of people. You have this movie that is tremendously received everywhere. Then you have this crazy thing that happens with the nominations with the Oscars. But on the same day, I remember being there and you win the critics choice award for directing and you win the, then you win the golden globe and you win everything. And you end up back 15 years after Goodwill hunting, accepting an Oscar again. And I just wonder again, it's when I come back to this roller coaster theme, it's kind of unbelievable. Just, uh, That the dips and the risk. It's kind of
1: emblematic of this business and how it works, and that people people don't understand, which is why big companies come in and own studios and then abandon them, is that it's inherently risk based. It's bets. You're making bets, and you make the most well informed bet and you try to have to take the best of it. But ultimately, you know, you work just as hard on the ones that are Gelia as the ones that are um, art. And you you invest as much and you believe in them as much, and in in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah, sure, you could like to. Job for money and those shit, but like for the most part, you know, um, it's it. There's just something kind of nebulous. I heard Zemeckis once say movies are kind of binary. You know, they either sort of work or they don't. There's something that kind of you just don't know that either sort of comes together or it doesn't. I've had some that were just just had bad luck all the way, and Argo was one that just fell into place in every single way: the right actor, the right location, the right came, you know, everything that that I wanted to do. I was, I was able to do it all just sort of worked and I've I've had experiences where it just doesn't, it's an up and down business. It's the nature of, it's a sort of blackjack experience, you know, sometimes you win. Sometimes but most
0: people, most people fall off the wave. I mean, it's amazing. You've been able to, or you've chosen to, or you've had to, or whatever it is to ride the the highs and the lows, but that brings us to, you know, the, I guess it's been about eight years, as you say, since Argo and all that success. And there have been again some really uh, tremendous accomplishments with *Gone Girl*, which I know is sort of written to be a meta kind of thing, and and was you were great in it for. And working with Fincher, I mean, it's nice. I'm sure just as an actor, not not making your movies to be wanted by somebody like that. Uh, of course, the first thing you did with Gavin O'Connor with *The Accountant* in 2016. I don't think anybody expected that to be as successful as it was, um, but. You know, I know you've and you've spoken about that. You've had your you've been knocked around a little bit again with some of this, the whole Batman ordeal where people say you're coming out of Argo. And they I think there was maybe a sense that this is what you're going to do with this. Goodwill, you know, right after, after Argo, you're back and you're going to go do, you know, a comic book movie or whatever. And I think Clooney, who was up there with you winning the Oscar for Argo, has said, you know, he was advising against it based on his own experience. That's what but, George claims. claims. I don't know. I, that's what he, uh, you don't remember That might be a story
1: that's convenient for the uh, circuit.
0: <laughs> but uh. but, but uh, I mean, just to, to the last of those things, I just want to note before I ask you to respond. So, you know, and then inevitably nobody has... Every movie that they direct is tremendously received. You had your hiccup with live by night. And then obviously as you've dealt with to one degree or another, the, the, the personal stuff. So pre just, this is all setting up pre way back. How do you look back at, at the, the last eight years?
1: Sometimes, sometimes some movies work. Some don't. You do movies for different reasons. Um, Girl, the experience of that was becoming friends with David who I think is one of the greatest people I've ever met he's got the taste of an artist the mind of an engineer and he's brilliantly funny I think mank is a magnificent masterpiece I love David as a human being and the gift of that movie was like his friendship um and and you know uh yeah and the account was great that panned out great and and you know I did batten because I wanted to do it for my kids you know I wanted to do movie that my son would take. Uh, my son, you know, when the kids didn't see Don't Argo and, you know, the grown up movies. And I thought that would be fun. And I, I loved, Zach wanted to do sort of a version of the Frank Miller um, Dark Knight graphic novel series, which uh, is a really good version of that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of reasons why things go the way they do in the movie business. And just because your face is on the poster. <laughs> doesn't mean that you know what I mean you're you're dictating all those things and even if you are that they would go well um I like live by night as much as any of my movies I love live by night so it, it was my fault to to I wanted it to come out when it did and I and it was a mistake I think to, to, to release it in the way and the time that we did and Warners told me that and I did I didn't agree and um, it was a mistake I, I liked the movie I think it was also like okay you know it was back to that same thing you've got a lot out of Argo, now we're not gonna, you know, um, because that movie, you know, I think is good, you know. Um, there are great performances and, it, and and really interesting stuff, and it moves me as much as as any of my movies. Um, but I also have a lot of humility. I mean, I, there's icy flaws in all my movies. It's just the nature of this thing. It, it's hard for people to understand, as if, like, you know, why didn't you make a good movie? You know, why didn't you make a successful movie? Well, you know, I tried. Um, and and uh, I thought it was fun to do Batman. I knew there was gonna be a certain amount of, you know, I didn't realize what a pi- pop culture theme, the whole comic world. And now comics have kind of taken over the movie business. And I wouldn't be surprised if after COVID there are only 20 movies released a year theatrically, and 15 of them are in you know, pajamas. But also <laughs> that's probably not what I want to do now at the stage of my career. You know, I did wanna do that after Argo, and I wanna do Gargoyle, I don't want to do the account and I want to and 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 I wanted to do it by night and and I wanted to do Batman. I, that would be so much fun and then and I wore the suit to my son's birthday party which was worth every moment of suffering of Justice League and um, <laughs> you know uh, I, but but now really it's like I found that where I am and, and also I, I I realized I was an alcoholic and I stopped drinking I was drink and I started drinking too much uh, around the time of Justice League and um it's a hard thing to confront and face and deal with. And I've been sober for a a, a while now and I feel really good and it's healthy and good as I've ever felt. And the process of recovering from alcoholism has been really instructive. And I think it's great for people who aren't alcoholics, you know, like be Mm -hmm. honest, have integrity, take accountability, help other people. Um, It's a good set of things that they, that they teach you. Uh, It took me a little while to get it. I had a few slips like most people, but uh, I feel really good and so that those two things have really don't have much to do with one another and also it's so like i mean if you knew how many actors and directors and writers were alcoholics and bad drug actors and that you know <laughs> are compulsive in some way I mean the business is it's like not it's the most ordinary thing in the world in Hollywood. Yeah. um and I've worked with actors who showed up drunk and you know I mean it's uh and that was not me my I, I drank you know like alone in my living room. and and just passed out drinking scotch you know um Mm. but i got sober and that was part of it and yeah of course people will say like oh you know take shots at you for that but that has nothing to do with your work or the quality of your work and um and interestingly you know you know it's not like they go, i don't know I, i i it is what it is it's part of the deal i it's too bad that like that attention in your personal life comes with this other stuff but i understand it it's part of how it goes and
0: well, I mean, I, I think the only reason that it's, that it's applicable here, and I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to in any way push that further, but I just think you have now given in the coming, literally, I think, coming right out of that difficult period, literally, I think the next day going to the set, from what I yeah. understand from- from one, from one set, of the times
1: that I, that I uh, went into recovery, which, which was several, took me several yeah. shots at it to get it. It's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's difficult. But one of the things that happened to me, was that I was forced to really honestly look at myself, my my failings, my shortcomings, my character flaws, to really find accountability, to not hide or run from feelings. And I developed a much greater access to, and this sounds very actuary, so forgive me, but like just the full range of my emotions. And I had so many more life experiences and so much more to bring to a performance now I, I feel like a much, much better actor than I've ever been. I love it. I just had an amazing time on, on the last duel. I loved doing it. Um, and I, and I want to just do roles that, you know, like uh, hopefully this, this tender bar thing, um, you know, with George is about re- people living their lives, you know, that, very, that are relatable and real and, and about the, what they feel and what they think and how they handle the challenges in their lives. And that's, and it's it, with the way backwards was like yes, getting sober again. The uh, last movie not being successful, but I it was sort of like Hollywood. Then. Like I was like, this is a great acting role, and I know how to do it, and I I really understand alcoholism doesn't require any further research on my part. I was the <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis of that movie, um, and uh, I I I I really felt like you know. It's 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 a sad movie and a difficult movie and it's and really it's about losing a child more than it's about alcohol yeah. even um, because that's really what's what's going on with that character um, and that I didn't understand thank God and that did require a lot yeah. of imagination and work and research but you know the scenes that were emotional and difficult every day I came home feeling elated and thrilled and I felt like I really understood and loved doing it
0: well and I think it's. Again, I have really gone back in prep for this. I'd seen your stuff, obviously, initially when it was first out, but I've gone back and watched a lot. I've read a lot. And I honestly think this is one of the best acting jobs you've you've ever done. I know it must have been kind of painful at at times to put yourself through it. And there are certain moments that demanded, you know, and, and, and Gavin and I think you have talked about just certain scenes that probably come very close to nerves and whatever. But at the end of the day, as you, when you look back on, you know, you've played alcoholics before, you've done the town, triple frontier, other stuff. But when you look back on this role years from now and the experience of playing it and just, you know, what do you think you're going to most remember? Was it cathartic? Was it helpful? Was it uh, something that you can now feel very proud of?
1: I, I feel, I mean, listen, I, I, I feel enormous, both humble and enormously proud of it. It was the thing where I wanted to, to leave uh, leave something behind that was really representative of what I felt was um, the best I could do. I felt that I, I was capable of doing something more than I had done, and going deeper, and really, um, you know, finding deep and authentic uh, emotional behavior, recreating that, creating empathy in the audience, and and doing something that was really meaningful to me. That the way back is the movie, the one movie that I would show people. If, um, you know, if they want to know about me as an actor, I'm, you know, I put on weight. I was 240 pounds. I was it wasn't vain. It was not, it was like a real guy in a real life, really suffering and really trying to overcome it in an honest way. And every moment had to be played with authenticity and integrity. And I, loved it i'm enormously proud of it i don't i'm i i've been bad in movies and um this is one that i felt like i was really good in and i feel really good about it um and it wasn't first of all he, he the alcohol. alcoholism a different kind of alcoholic than me i mean there's all sorts of different ways that addiction and alcoholism and so on and compulsive eating or sex i mean there's so much you know of that kind of behavior in the world and it takes a lot of different forms his was different from mine but nonetheless like like I say you would think it would be painful but it was kind of joyful to feel myself like accomplishing the things I set out to to getting to the places emotionally I wanted to get to to and like it always is when it's at its best I was just talking about this the other day like it feels as easiest. it just flows. You know, Matt was telling me that he was talking to Bono when he was in Ireland. Bono was saying, you know, we don't take musicians or ourselves very seriously, but we take it seriously when a song comes into the room. And I felt like with that movie, like that kind of came into the room. You know, this guy, his life, what it meant. And I just I felt like I was kind of just um, dancing with it. And it was a lovely, wonderful, rewarding feeling. And I felt like, the crowning kind of achievement of my life as an actor, I don't feel like I need to um, find some other movie to say like, look, I can do this. Um, I mean, I've done, I think 50 movies now, um, wow. in various. but that's definitely in my view, my, the favorite of my performances, not only selfishly as an actor, but also because it was about something meaningful and important and, I was bummed when the pandemic hit the week it came out, we yeah. a theater, yeah. <laughs> but it actually turned out to be a blessing for the movie because they rushed it into streaming and we had a captive audience. So I had more more emails from people about that movie than uh, anything else I've done. And I love it. It's wonderful. I, I wouldn't. <laughs> my kids don't want to see it, but uh, yeah. and I would maybe give it some time before they did because I think it, it, it would certainly be more painful for them. Uh, it mm-hmm. was it, strangely... Um, wonderful for me and i should mention that a part of that was getting to know the young men who played the basketball players they were great guys great actors and they remi- they all spent all day you know asking questions about acting and talking about casting directors and auditions and trying to get this part and that part and it reminded me of school times and being a player mm-hmm. on a team with a small part in that movie and of of just loving doing it and appreciating the opportunity to do it and i was so grateful that I got to come to work and play that part every day and, and do this for a living. It, it it really changed my life, you know? Uh, and since that time, that movie, I've just felt I love my work. I'm going to choose things that are interesting to me. I'm not interested in doing stuff that's trying to be commercial. I want to be a good father most of all. And that's kind of all I need.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm really happy for you and, uh, glad you're back. Glad you're doing well. And, um, Can't thank you enough for doing that. really
1: appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg, and you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.